Welcome to today's Hubbard and O'Brien Economics Podcast. We're recording this one on Friday, May 29th. I'm Tony O'Brien. I'm a professor of economics at Lehigh University. Joining me as always is my co-author, Glenn Hubbard, who is a professor of finance and economics at Columbia University. We're very happy to have joining us today, Bill Goff. Bill is an associate teaching professor at Penn State. He received his PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in 1990. Bill is an associate editor of the Journal of Economic Education and serves on the American Economic Association's Committee on Economic Education. Many people may know Bill as the editor of RFE, Resources for Economists on the Internet. It's available on the website of the American Economic Association at aeawb.org. I remember in the early days of the internet, Bill was a real pioneer in identifying websites useful for both economic research and teaching. One of Bill's hobbies is photography. He's taken some spectacular photos of the Milky Way. Glenn was very excited to hear this, but I had to tell him we were talking about the astronomical body (laughs) not the candy bar. Bill, Glenn, how are you both today? Great, Tony. Doing well. Okay, why don't we start. Bill, I know you teach large classes. I think about 1,700 students last year, and that you've spent a lot of time thinking and writing about ways to improve classroom teaching. Were those ideas helpful during the transition to teaching online this semester? Did you learn things from this experience that you might use if you teach online courses this fall? It was handy. The way I think about teaching really comes from STEM education researchers, uh, people like Carl Wyman, a Nobel laureate, who now does STEM education research. And he argues the best way to teach is give students challenging questions, they get to heart of misunderstandings, and then you give them rich feedback on that. So the foundation of what you're trying to do it's very helpful when you're making transition to a different modality, if you will. So so try to maintain that idea of asking hard questions and then giving students a lot of feedback. You know, on, on that, Bill, how do you find a Zoom as a teaching device for online? Do, do you think it makes you break up class differently than you might if you were just face-to-face with them at a large auditorium? It is a little bit different. I don't get as much visual feedback on where they stand. A positive part, though, is... In the chat, I get many more questions than I typically get in a large class. No one wants to raise a hand in class of two or 300 people. I certainly wouldn't. I understand why other people wouldn't. But in chat, people actually do ask things. So it's a real benefit there. What about in terms of opportunities? Are there things that you're finding that Zoom for online teaching gives you that you hadn't had before? I mean, for example you could probably get a guest speaker in for 15 or 20 minutes that that would have been impossible before, or maybe there's some exercise you could break up. Is there something that's, instead of just viewing it as a burden, is there an opportunity you think in the teaching? Truthfully, I had not thought about a guest speaker. That's certainly right. Perhaps you'll be available in the fall. (laughs) You can also do breakout rooms to have students work with each other. That didn't work with me too well in the spring as the emergency move to remote teaching. But I think it worked pretty uh, a little bit better in the fall. So certainly some opportunities, especially like your point about uh, guest speakers. Mm-hmm. Another uh, thing I should add is you can also record the class very easily. And my students are spread around the globe from Kuwait to Japan to India, as many of us had. And they could watch the course when they wanted to later on. That struck me as a 
grow plus, the recording being something innate in Zoom that's not so innate otherwise. I see, so you're doing it all uh, asynchronously. Uh, we were, I was doing it synchronously, but I could also do it for the asynchronous students as well. Got it. What about topics? You know, the, the COVID pandemic is interesting because it really does lay bare a lot of topics in economics, ranging from supply and demand to how financial markets work to how do you think about movements and unemployment and so on. What are uh, some examples you focused on either in, in micro or macro from the pandemic where the pandemic has given you a really nice teaching window to explain? So by the time it happened, the, the basic topics we had left were aggregate supply and aggregate demand. So it's a great example of negative aggregate supply and aggregate demand shocks. For this coming semester, I'll be talking much more about how unemployment's measured. Because as you know, there's some tricky things going on with that now on who's actually unemployed, on le- temporary layoffs and things like that. Um, I pretty much just do macro, so I've not done too much there. Also, I did talk a lot about monetary policy and the very forceful actions of the Federal Reserve. Yeah, it's very interesting, as I find in talking about the Fed with students, is that you, you really have to change the way you t- think about the Fed. I've, I've tried to talk to students about Fed 1.0, which is sort of textbook Fed, buy treasuries, Fed 2.0, if you will. You're buying mortgage-backed securities, maybe some investment-grade corporates. Fed 3.0, if you're buying high-yield debt, immunity debt, and then Fed 4.0, the small and mid-sized business stuff. So by the fall, gosh, who knows? I, I know Chair Powell was speaking at Princeton today. Maybe he's got a Fed 5.0 by now, but they're already up to a lot of a lot of new uh, a lot of new interventions. Any different kinds of questions you're getting from students in this environment? Are there questions more about how they should think about the labor market or uh, what's the shape of the recovery? I mean, how do you talk with them? Um, I do have questions like that. I- basically teach macro principles. And I don't have too many seniors, but I had one, and this student is graduating this semester. And he asked, what's the job market gonna look like? And it's pretty hard to give him a very optimistic take on things. But that's certainly gonna be one way to connect the course with current events. And currently the Federal Reserve, one thing I found with the Fed, they have very little knowledge about the Federal Reserve. And so I have to introduce the Fed to them. I do it in terms of the dual mandate and the Fed's charter and flow from things uh, with that. And turn out a little bit of a side note, I was at a um, conference at Jekyll Island at the uh, start of spring break and actually visited the Federal Reserve room there. Well, that's right. I think uh, J.P. Morgan's yacht ferried a whole bunch of New Yorkers down there Yes, uh, at the founding of the Fed. So no yeah. doubt you arrived by yacht yourself, I hope. Yeah, yeah, the Morgan experience. Uh, yeah. I agree. This is going to be really interesting. And of course, there's something else that's big this fall, which is there's a big presidential election. And there'll be lots of topics. I mean, what kinds of questions are you expecting students to have? Not about the politics or the candidates, but you know, themes that you expect in principles this fall? I would think it's going to be on the uh, strength of the expansion. Hopefully, we reach the trough sometime this summer, and we'll be expanding from there. Have a bit more idea by then on what the expansion is going to look like. Of course, now quite uncertain. You have a wide range of uh, forecasts and views. Hopefully, by then, a little bit more identified. And also, will the support that's going on, on like the extended unemployment benefits, uh, the $1,200 payments, Will those still be going on or not? I expect we'll have some very teachable moments about those then. 
No, I, I certainly agree. It's it's going to be very, very interesting. And of course, while we all hope that there's a V-shaped recovery or at least a pretty good recovery, there's a fairly good chance there's not. And I think there'll be a lot of student uh, anxiety, obviously, as they hear from their parents and friends and, and family uh, about the labor market uh, and about the economy. Bill, let, let me ask you one other thing about online teaching before we leave that behind. I know that at Lehigh, uh, the thing that concerned many of my colleagues was grading, coming up with a, a procedure that was workable and that they felt was satisfactory and that the students were happy with. How did you work grading this spring? That's a tough one. I think we all struggle with that a bit. One thing you can do is ask higher level questions to take more thought by the students rather than something to be Googled or looked up very quickly. You have issues with how long is exam open? How long is the window for it? You have issues with, are you gonna present one question at a time? Are you gonna present the questions all at once? I think different instructors have different views on exactly where they'd run on those trade-offs. I think one thing everyone can do again would be asking higher level questions, of course. You tell your students that, you give them a sense of what those questions might be, so there's more thought involved rather than something they can look up very quickly and easily. You know, on, on that theme, Bill, going forward, obviously there's a sense the pandemic may disrupt teaching for a bit of time. But even putting that aside, if we were starting from scratch, what should be the mix between Zoom or other online mechanisms versus face-to-face? If we weren't in a pandemic, we're just designing teaching everything from conveying material well to engagement to cost. What should we be doing with students? I still like in-person instruction best. It's what I'm most familiar with. I think most of us feel that way, but online opens up classes and college for many people who couldn't attend otherwise. I think we ought to focus more a bit on that. Penn State has a large uh, uh, world campus program. There's 20 or 30,000 students in that. So I think we ought to really focus a bit more on how we can get to those students who can't get to us otherwise and think more carefully about it. There's been a small cadre of online instructors thinking about these things. I think we ought to take a look at what they've been doing and learn lessons from them. It's not as if there's nothing there. There's a lot there. We just haven't been paying much attention to, and I think we really should. No, it's very interesting. And what will campus look like this fall? Fully open, fully closed, somewhere in between, where? It's not clear yet for Penn State. They say they'll be announcing by June 15th. My estimate is it'll be like other most other schools. Um, the Cal State system's a little bit different going completely online. I imagine we'll be here on campus, but it'll be social distancing, masks, maybe sidewalks being one way, classrooms being restricted. It'll be quite a bit different. It'll be a bit of a challenge, I think, to be honest with you. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I'm teaching this fall, and I've been told we're going to do something our dean calls high flex. And I said, what does that mean? And he explained that it just means that, let's say there's 60 people in a roster, 15 of them will be in the room physically, and the other 45 will be on Zoom, different groups of 15, presumably on different teaching days. Uh, going to be a challenge, but I think, you know, it's, it's what universities are going to have to do. It's hard to imagine that we're going to go back to the full classroom experience anytime soon. When I think about a typical auditorium I've taught principals in, there are hundreds of people in there all crammed together like a movie theater. That's just hard to imagine really soon. I I don't know what you think. I agree 100%. Uh, My classrooms are very tight like that, elbow to elbow, very tight seating. 
it's going to be some time before we're back in that environment, the one that I think we're most used to in a way, but it's going to be really pretty tough for several semesters to go. Oh, sure. And people keep focusing on what a governor or mayor says about rules, but as I've reminded people in the university, the real decision makers here are us. It's, it's people. You know, we'll decide when we're comfortable going back to work and we're comfortable buying things. You know, I live in New York, so when, when am I going to be comfortable getting on the subway out front of Columbia, going to the theater district and attending a play? It's going to be a while before I do those things, even if the governor of New York tells me I can do it tomorrow. I agree 100%. The economics of that, of course, are when are people going to be spending as much and depends upon when they're comfortable doing so and are students coming back to campus and their parents' views on that and what they're doing on campus for all the decision makers. Yeah, that's right. We got the, the unusual news, at least unusual for the United States today, that incomes were actually up a lot. Transfer payments overcame the amount lost uh, in wages. And consumption fell a lot. So the saving rate is at an all-time high. Now, I'm not sure, for those of us who for years have wanted higher saving, I'm not sure this was the method we had in mind, but it's, uh, we're definitely in interesting territory. It certainly is. And I feel a bit for macroeconomists running data. They're going to have all these outliers around this time and regressions and studies in the future. Yeah, I mean, we used to say, well, but for the depression, you know, and then, <laughs> well, but for the great financial crisis. And you know, when you talk to students about these once-in-a-hundred-year events, we seem to be having them more than once every hundred years. So we'll have to uh, have to explain that. But I, I do think uh, the pandemic offers these teaching opportunities. You know, Tony and I have been trying to um, use them to write up uh, teaching exercises for the fall because whether it's, you know, how did the price of oil go negative, why would you have expected a toilet paper run? You know, all the things that are in students' heads are actually good ways to teach Econ 101. And as you know, for all of us, we're always looking for interesting ways to get them to think about what we think is intrinsically interesting. Yeah, the great way to teach a course is pose a question, a puzzle, captures people's attention, then they pay attention to the rest of the class. Yeah, I actually think that's why students come to us in principles. There, there are some questions they've heard at home or from fellow students, and they come to the class wanting to be able to answer those. So uh, I, I really think that that's a good one. You know, for example, is uh, the home mortgage interest rate going to go up or down? Uh, are we going to see inflation? What does it mean if, you know, we hear about trade protection, what does that mean to the price of a shirt that I might buy at the store? All, all these things that are very practical, we actually have some, some insights on, and I, I think that that's part of the fun of teaching a class like principles, you can take those kind of amorphous questions from students and show them, we actually do have a way of looking at that. I agree very much. And that is indeed the uh, fun part of the course. And one nice thing about macro is those topics actually change from semester to semester. At the start of this last semester, I said, we'll probably want anything like the Great Recession in your life. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's kind of true. It's not really the Great Recession. It's worse. But, but yeah, it's... You know, it's interesting if you'd asked me, even knowing that the virus had started, if you'd asked me the question, say, New Year's Day, what do you think? I, I can't claim at all to have been prescient. I never could have predicted for you uh, where, where we are now, which is, I guess, why I'm a college professor, not a billionaire hedge fund uh, investor. Yeah. Even in February, I'd read several books on the Spanish flu, and somehow it didn't occur to me all this was going to happen. I was actually kind of mad at myself for not being a little bit more forward-looking. Well, that's interesting is, you know, like, like John Barry's book on the mm -hmm. Spanish flu, which I think is very 
well done. He'd also written a, a book I'd read several years ago on the Mississippi flood. So he wrote books about that period. But, you know, he makes clear the way in which it can come out of nowhere and also the possibility of reinfection, uh, which yes. is, a, you know, an issue now. We're all braced for what's going to happen uh, this fall and, and, and this winter, you know, particularly on campus. You know, should we start early? Should we start late? How do we manage? Yeah. yeah, we're still early in this whole thing. It's going to go yeah. on for months. Not yeah, because until there's a vaccine, there's not really a pause. And I'm not a doctor, but everything I read suggests that's a little bit, uh, that's a little ways away. Yes. And then I've read news reports. Many people aren't sure if they would actually use the vaccine, which is kind of troubling. Well, I will. <laughs> I'm sitting here. <laughs> if it comes. I think I'll pass on disinfectants, but I'll, I'll take the vaccine if it, uh, yeah. if it comes my way. Disinfectants only on my counters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Bill, have you thought how the, the classroom dynamic might change. Suppose we're back in the classroom, but you know some of the students are wearing masks. Uh, maybe you have only half as many students in there. Or would you be as comfortable in maybe dividing up into discussion groups or even like using clickers or even distributing handouts, things like that? Are there, have you thought at all about that? A little bit, and I'm not sure quite how to deal with it yet. I do a lot of so-called peer instruction where I pose a challenging clicker question. Uh, students vote first, maybe half get it right. Then I have them convince their peer and maybe 75% do so. So they're teaching each other. But if they're six feet apart, I'm not sure how to do that. I'm just not sure yet. Um, passing things out, I think not. I typically wander the room I'm doing peer instruction to get a sense of their thinking so I can address problems they might have. And I'm not sure if I'm going to do that anymore. I'm 61 years old. I'm not terribly concerned, but one worry is if I get ill and pretty sick, it's not just a problem for me, but it's for all my students. Yeah, that's the thing about all of this. It's not just that our behavior matters for us. It matters It matters generally. You know, there's another question that occurs to me that's really interesting because policy, of course, is trying to help preserve employment relationships through some programs at the moment. That's a nice chance to talk to students about employment and unemployment. But I always find that students struggle with the difference between gross and net job creation and destruction that basically we don't mind. And in fact, we want an economy that's destroying a lot of jobs uh, as long as it's creating a lot more of them. And, and that kind of churn is what makes things efficient. How, how do you talk to students? And this, the pandemic can almost give you an example of how to, to trade off between wanting to protect people on the one hand where they are but not wanting to impede that reallocation. I mean, it might be that a year from now, we're gonna have fewer restaurants, fewer movie theaters and things like that. And maybe that'll be okay if there's something else. I mean, how, how do you talk to students about that? Because they're- yeah, I think Jason Furman makes that point as well, that perhaps what we're doing in the United States with more unemployment insurance, as opposed to what Europe is doing, protecting current jobs, might be the thing with these structural changes. It's gonna be years before restaurants are back probably even longer for the travel industry and airlines are back. So maybe some reallocation of these people is a thing to do. And unemployment insurance seems like a better way to support their spending than um, uh, the Paycheck Protection Program. Both are useful. Yeah. I think that's gonna be part of it. Yeah, it's interesting because obviously if we thought that this was going to last say a month or two, then protection might make sense. If it's five years, of gradually bleeding away, well, why should you force somebody or encourage somebody to stay into a job that has little little or no future? So it's an interesting question because I get frustrated when people say things like, 
the number of jobs that are lost is more than the whole number of jobs created since the Great Recession. And I go, no, 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 you're mixing up gross and net. We've created, I realize only economists think that's important, but uh, I do. And it sounds like yes. you're, you do too. I had not thought of that specific point. That's very, very well, That's a true. classic. It drives me crazy when the newspapers say that because of course they're completely wrong. How'd you get into photography? And, um, and especially thinking like, you know, photographing elements of the sky. How, how did you get it? Everybody thinks we economists are boring. And of course we're all prejudiced and we think we're actually not. How did you get into something uh, interesting like that? Um, my father did photography as a hobby for years ago, and I picked it up in high school. Uh, for a summer job, I did a bit of wedding photography, which I found to be terrifying. This was back in the film days. You messed that up, you pretty much have to leave town. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, a wedding, you know, you got to get the photos, uh, the photos right, uh, right away. How'd you make the transition then from then, that the to more enjoyable, casual photography? Um, I do a lot of travel. I've been to places like Easter Island and Machu Picchu and Tahiti and uh, Slavard, uh, Spitsbergen. And so I do photography there. And then somewhere I saw someone doing pictures of the Milky Way and the modern digital cameras, you can do um, a pretty good job with those. They, they absorb a whole bunch of light. I can do pictures now I could not done in the old film days. Yeah, you sound like you're way ahead of me. If I were to look at Bill Goff teaching slides, would I see great photos? Not very often. Oh, okay. <laughs> I usually just Google pictures of what I'm looking for. Oh, okay. Bill, I know that you're involved with the Teach Econ Conference. And as I understand it, it's going to be all online this year. So how is that going to work? Um, so it's all online. It's free for anyone to go to. It's not like a regular conference where you have to travel somewhere, pay a registration fee, all those other expenses. So anyone can go to it. It'll be run pretty much like most conferences in that uh, people present their papers in my session or 10-minute slot, and we won't have me holding up a sign when it's time for them to be done, the presenters. So I'll be ringing a bell about two minutes up when they have two minutes left to go. That sounds good. We'll put a link in the notes to this podcast so that people will be able to click on that and register for the conference. Yeah, just put a GIF of Bill ringing a bell. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Thanks so much, Bill, for joining us today. Very interesting discussion. As we close some news, the Hubbard O'Brien Economics Podcast is now available for download on iTunes. You can go to iTunes to subscribe, and if the spirit moves you, you can leave us a review. You can also still find the podcast and our blog posts about the economics of the pandemic at Hubbard O'Brien Economics all one word run together, dot com. Please subscribe there to receive email alerts about new posts. Thanks again to everyone for joining us for this conversation. We look forward to connecting with instructors and students again on a future Hubbard O'Brien Economics podcast. We'll see you next time. <laughs>